but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Please be seated. Thank you again for coming and worshiping with us on this beautiful afternoon. I'm still getting used to looking at all of you with masks on. It's very intimidating. It feels like I'm preaching to a room of 40 surgeons. So maybe I'll throw some Latin medical terms in there to keep you interested. All right. Let's start to uh, unpack what Jesus was trying to teach us through these stories so many years ago. Let's start off with kind of a parallel story. In 1961, Random House Publishing released a book called Sneetches and Other Stories. The author was Theo Giesel. You probably know him by his pen name, which is Dr. Seuss. And the best story in those collection of stories was titled The Sneetches. And I'll give you guys a quick rundown. A sneetch is a giant creature that's got a head of a bird and the body of a bear, and they're yellow, and they're very odd. But the most important thing that you have to know about sneetches is that half of them are born with just a regular stomach, and half of them are born with a green star on their belly. And uh, this, of course, is something that the other sneetches, the ones born without the star, are very jealous of. And uh, here is an actual line from the book that shows you just what an evil place this sneech world is. It says, when the star-bellied sneetches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain-bellied sneetches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away. They never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after year. So uh, that's what's going on in this story. There's these creatures, and half have stars and half don't, and the ones that don't are always excluded from the other group. And then the guy with the best name in the history of bad guys shows up, okay? His name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean. <laughs> and he's got this machine, and for $3, it will put a green star on your belly. You guys can follow along up here. And so the Sneetches without stars can't give him their money quick enough to get through that machine and finally look like everybody else and be included in all the star belly parties. But the Sneetches who were born without stars don't like that, do they? 
So they start paying $10 to Sylvester McMonkey McBean so they can go through the machine and have their stars taken off so they now have another way to exclude the others. The pattern continues over and over again and the story ends with this guy McBean leaving town with both his machine and all of the Sneetch's money. The Sneetch's were so busy trying to be included while excluding others that they can't even remember who started off with or without stars. And the brilliant lesson of the Sneetch's is this. You can't be an insider unless there's outsiders. You can't be desirable unless somebody else is less desirable. When you promote yourself, it's almost always at the expense or the cost of somebody else. It's a story written for kids. It's a story that was written 59 years ago. And of course, it's a lesson that each one of us still struggles with today. Of course, Dr. Seuss wasn't the only great storyteller who was concerned about this problem. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ told the parable that was read to us by the worship team about this exact same issue. Jesus' story doesn't rhyme, unfortunately, but luckily for us, it offers three solutions to the problem of exclusion and self-promotion. Hope you guys grabbed a bulletin when you came in. Uh, we're going to approach unpacking the parable of Jesus in two parts. In section one, we're going to try to understand the context of dinner parties in uh, the era that Jesus is giving us this story in, because if we can understand the culture of what he's talking about and what he's really poking at, it'll help us extract his main points. And then in section two, we're going to talk about the three countercultural and dynamic spiritual lessons that Jesus is teaching us through this story. Jesus is giving us three life-changing alternatives to exclusion and self-promotion and the problems that come along with those. So let's start off by just having a quick crash course in first century dinner parties. And I think that we'll quickly learn that dinner parties back then were very different than dinner parties today. But as we do that, let's try to make a connection to the text. Let's not just have this arbitrary, different cultural set of practices that's happening. Let's try to make a connection to how, even though the parties and the traditions themselves are a little bit different, a lot of the same things are going on then that still go on today. Uh, in short, a banquet, a wedding feast, or a dinner party back in the time of Jesus was the ultimate way to rise in status. We still might throw dinner parties today to kind of rise our status, uh, raise our status in the community, but we probably have other ways of doing it as well. And I just want to point out, sometimes we work hard and we save up our money and we go out and we buy something that's high quality. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not what today's story is talking about. Other times, there's things like designer clothes, cosmetic surgery, luxury vehicles that remind us that Sylvester McMonkey McBean is still taking our money, right? For the same reasons, so that we can distinguish ourselves from everybody else. This compulsion to raise our status and our profile is exactly what Jesus is addressing in today's parable, even though they did it in different ways than we do it today. My father uh, tragically has Parkinson's and uh, he's in a nursing home. And uh, for the last uh, year and a half, I visited him several times a week, almost every day. You might think this problem 
of arguing over who gets the best spot at the dinner table is something that we grow out of. But I can assure you in a nursing home filled with 90-year-olds, they still argue about who gets the best, most preferable seat at the table. It's kind of a joke, but it's also a reminder that these are things that we never just quite age out of or mature out of. It's something at the heart of the human experience. All right, so if you were going to have a wedding feast or a banquet or a dinner party in the time of Jesus, that was the way that you would really raise your status in the community. Uh, there's a couple places. We don't have time to look them all up individually, but uh, they're noted in your sermon notes. And in stories like Genesis 43:34 and John 2:10 and Matthew 22:4, there's just these little clues in these other stories that show us that the quality of the food and the drink that you served at your dinner parties and banquets were essential in helping you raise your profile in the community. So you'd have the people, uh, you'd have your neighbors and your relatives come, and if the wine and the food was excellent, that's how people would really know that you were somebody. We know in other places listed in your notes as well, like Luke 14, 7 to 11, that there was one special seat of honor. And if you got seated right next to the host of that dinner party, that let everybody in the room, that let everybody in the community know that you were the guest of honor reclining right next to that host. We also know in places like Luke 5, 29 and 30 and Luke 7, 36 and 39 that one of the criticisms that was most frequently thrown against Jesus was that he ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And what that's telling us is that you could also raise your profile in your community based on the desirability of the guests that you ate with. The more prominent, the higher status, the, the more beloved the people that came to your party, the more everyone at the party would increase in status. So those were just some of the ways that throwing the perfect dinner party would make you a somebody in that culture. If you guys look in uh, your sermon notes, you'll see there's actually a diagram there. There's actually a picture of, uh, of everybody reclined around these tables. And there's places like Amos 6.4 and John 13.23-25 that kind of tell us the logistics of how dinner parties worked. And it's a little bit different than you probably have guests in your house. Uh, we also know from archaeological records that a lot of times three tables would be arranged in kind of like a letter C or a horseshoe shape. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, it would allow the servants to come into the middle and put more food and more drink and more things out on the table without getting in the way of the guests. And the reason why it had to be done this way, they didn't really have chairs back then. Think about how a, a carpenter would make chairs. And you know, they did have chairs back then, but you know, they wouldn't have a set of 12 like we might have in our dining room today. And so they would all actually recline on pillows on their side. Uh, it's kind of funny to think about. The guest of honor is reclining right on the host, and then the next guest of honor, the, the second most important person, is reclining on that person. Uh, and if you would all just lean on the person next to you, we'll recreate this. Just, just kidding. It's COVID. Don't do it. All right. So everyone's reclining on each other around these tables, and it's just a picture of who's the most important, because you're right there at the bosom of the guest, talking to him uh, the whole time, uninterrupted. The next most important person is reclining on you all the way around this horseshoe. It's not how we do it today, but I hope that gives us a little bit of familiarity 
with the picture that Jesus is giving us here. There's actually like a physically demonstrated way that you can know who's the most important guest and who's the fourth most important guest and who's the eighth most important guest all the way down the hierarchy. And it's in that exact context. Jesus is actually at one of these parties that he gives today's parable. And as he does, he gives us three dynamic lessons about how we can be less exclusive, less self-promoting, and grow spiritually and display the heart of God as we put those things into practice. Let's just wrap up today with, I think, the three main lessons that Jesus is teaching through today's parable. The first one is this. It's kind of an overlap with something that we talked about last week, uh, but we're not the ones making these up. We're just trying to faithfully draw out what Jesus is teaching to his followers. And the first thing that we learn in today's parable is that following God's law, trying to be biblical people, trying to follow what the Bible says, it should actually bring us a love of people not ascribe a a false sense of piety. In other words, the mistake that the Pharisees, the, the mistake that the guests at this table make is that they're all trying to do what the Bible says. They're all trying to apply the Old Testament. That's what it means to be a Pharisee. They're, they're experts on the law and they're living it out in a, a, a model exemplary way. But as they do that, it's creating a club of insiders and it's not loving the outsider. Listen to uh, how the story starts off here in Luke 14, 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So there's always a context. There's almost always a specific context that inspires Jesus to give the lessons that he does. And in this case, the Pharisees are watching him. We don't know what his place is at the table. But they're watching him to see what's going to happen. He's probably being set up here because you wouldn't invite somebody who was outwardly sick to your dinner party because of their fear of being unclean and contagious in that time. So they're probably trying to set a trap for Jesus. We don't know that for sure. And Jesus seizes on that moment and he heals this person who's sick. And he knows that that's agitating the Pharisees because they're trying to live out the Old Testament in a way that even exceeds what the Bible, what the Old Testament is telling them to do. But in their effort to obey, in their effort to even exceed what the Bible says, they've created a club of insiders. So much so that when somebody is ailing in their presence, they're actually critical of Jesus for taking the time and the effort to heal him. So this is, we're told, the Sabbath day. This would have been probably Saturday in the, the, that time period. And they believe so strongly in not working on the Sabbath day that even the food for this party would have been prepared the day before. That's how seriously they took that rule. And so there was also kind of this understanding that when you were trying to figure out what would be allowed and what wouldn't be allowed to do on the Sabbath, If it was anything that you could put off till the next day, that would be considered 
work if you did it then. If you could put it off to the next day, the rule of thumb was to put it off and do it tomorrow and don't work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus addresses this situation and he says, you hypocrites, if even your own donkey or your own ox fell into a hole, you would care enough to take it out and right that wrong. You care more about livestock than you care about humans. So uh, the first message that Jesus is trying to teach the guests at the party is that following God and applying the Bible should increase our love for outsiders and those who are suffering, whereas this group following the rules had created a club of insiders who didn't care about others. Let me, guys, give you a quick contrast to illustrate what it is that I think Jesus is urging us to do. There was a woman in my uh, previous church. She was in her late 80s. And uh, uh, this one day, a young man from the community that I knew wandered in the back door. He was using drugs. He was working and I think even sleeping in the back of a restaurant. He had lost his sister, his teenage sister, in a tragic motorcycle accident. And he was just a mess. And he showed up in church looking for some sort of inspiration or some sort of guidance. And he sat right next to my friend there in the back. And when the service was over, the woman came up to me and she said, Pastor Scott, we need to talk. Did you see that young man who was sitting next to me? And I said, I, I absolutely did. Did you get a chance to welcome him? And she said, I didn't. And I'd like you to talk to him because the whole service he was wearing a baseball hat. He never took it off. Can you please let him know that a man is not supposed to wear a hat in the house of God? Okay? Now, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that you shouldn't wear a baseball hat in the house of God. It's an extra rule that had been created by the insiders. An extra rule that had been created by people that spent a lot of time in a church building. Let's contrast that with uh, one of my favorite pastors. His name is Pastor Jimmy Dorrell. 35 years ago, this Texas pastor left his prominent church to start a new church. But he wasn't leaving for more pay. He wasn't leaving for a more prominent position. He wasn't even leaving for a bigger congregation. He left to start what's called Church Under the Bridge. It's a church in Waco, Texas that meets under I-35. And the congregation is entirely homeless people and addicts. And that's what trying to obey the Bible should do in our hearts. It should make us not create a group of outsiders, but lovingly drift towards the outsiders. Does that contrast make sense? And so what I think Jesus is telling us through the introduction to this parable as he's rebuking this crowd for caring more about their own livestock than this sick man who needs to be healed, is that as we follow God and learn and apply the Bible, we should grow in our convictions and we should grow in our understanding of what's truth. Jesus calls us to apply that conviction and truth in a way that pursues outsiders instead of creating insiders. And I hope under your masks you guys are saying amen. I want to be that. I want us to be that kind of church. All right. I think the second thing that Jesus is telling us through this parable is that pride is inevitable, right? Pride and self-promotion are inevitable. We see enough people with stars and we think, I want to have a star. I want to be at that dinner party. And Jesus is telling us here in verses 8 to 11 
that we can combat the inevitability of pride by living with a lack of self-promotion. A couple weeks ago, some college friends of mine came and uh, visited for a few hours, and we were hiking Usul Falls, and uh, one of my old friends from college, we were, we were talking about personality tests or something like that, and she said something along the lines of, no, Pastor Scott, I don't, I don't think that's your personality test number uh, because you're not a self-promoter. You're one of the most humble people that I've ever met. And I spent the next two weeks being super prideful that she said that, right? And you would do that too if somebody said that about you. There's an inevitability of pride. We are all drawn to promote ourselves and dwell on what we are good at. And Jesus knows that. And I think that's what he's addressing here in verses 8 to 11. Let me refresh your memory on what that says. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the top of the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um, Of course, Jesus is not concerned with where we sit at restaurants and parties. Like of all the things that Jesus could have put in the Bible, that's not one of the most essential things that he wanted to pass on to us. Clearly, he's using that as a metaphor or a device to teach us something even more significant. I think he's teaching us to live humbly and without self-promotion. And he's specifically saying that there's more honor to be gained when someone else bestows it on you than when you try to take that honor for yourself. Okay? This is encouraging. Jesus is giving us a really great tip right here. He's saying there's more honor to be gained when someone bestows it on you than when you try to take that honor for yourself. Uh, The historian Stephen Ambrose wrote over 20 books about World War II. And in one of his books about the invasion of Germany called Citizen Soldiers, he mentions that in over 40 years of interviewing World War II soldiers, there was one name, there was one commander who the men loved and complimented far more than anybody else that he had ever investigated or tried to learn about. And his name was General James Gavin. And Ambrose writes that dozens, if not hundreds of men, crusty old soldiers, would tear up when talking about how much they revered and loved Jumping Jim. Jumping Jim was given that nickname because he was the only general that ever paratrooped, that ever jumped out of a plane into an active combat situation. And he did it four times during World War II. One soldier mentioned a time that some, some men were slow to advance out of their foxhole and cross and seize an enemy bridge with fire coming in there, with bullets coming in their direction. And as they were slow to follow those orders, General Gavin jumped up and grabbed a grenade in one hand and a Tommy gun in the other and was the first to run down that bridge. Others mentioned with tears in their eyes that he secretly wrote condolence letters to the families of every soldier that perished under his command. 
He was the youngest to reach the rank of general at age 37. In World War II, he was awarded more awards than I could list here. And there's two or three chapters in that book uh, with some of the most inspiring examples of leadership that you'll ever come across. You contrast that with the other generals who are in their tents arguing about how to get their orders down the chain of command. But General Gavin received more honor from his selfless service than his peers did from all their politicking and all their promotion. I think that's a great example of what Jesus is telling us here. There's more honor to be gained when it's bestowed on you from others than when you try to take that honor for yourself. I think Jesus might have been talking about uh, Proverbs 25, 6-7 when he gives this parable about where to sit at a dinner party. Listen to what it says here in Proverbs 25, 6-7. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among great men. It's better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. In other words, Jesus is retelling something from the Old Testament. He's, uh, he's reminding us that if you live a dynamic life of character and love and service, absent of self-promotion, you'll actually receive more honor than somebody who spends their life chasing it. And I think the third thing that Jesus is teaching us through this parable is this. This is my favorite one. The heart of God is demonstrated by lavishing love on those who can't reciprocate it. Let me say that again. I think this story concludes with Jesus teaching us the lesson that the heart of God is demonstrated by showing love and hospitality and service to those who can't pay you back. Listen to how Jesus' teaching concludes here in verses 12 to 14 when it says this, Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends and your brothers and your sisters and your relatives or your rich neighbors. Because if you do, they may invite you back. And if so, then you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus concludes today's story with three verses that seem kind of like something a really spiritual person would say, but nobody would actually do. And I think when Jesus says things like this that seem a little bit detached and just kind of floating out there, we don't always know what to do with it. And we very seldomly recognize that he's probably inspired by something specifically from the Old Testament that he's bringing back around to remind us of God's lesson for us all along. Let me try to flesh out what Jesus is really talking about here as he concludes this parable. Have you guys ever heard it said in Scripture that King David was a man after God's own heart? Have you ever kind of chuckled to yourself and wondered what that means? Because he's constantly having affairs and having people killed and kind of getting out of situations with like really sneaky and devious behavior. How is King David a man after God's own heart? Well, the answer, of course, is if you really read through the life of David and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, if you, if you really read through, you just get these little snapshots, these tiny little moments where King David understood the gospel. And he, understand, he understood God's redemptive plan for humanity through a great king to come. 
even in an era when few people had any idea what God was going to do in future times. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story of David and Mephibosheth, but I'd like to read it for you now. Listen to what it says in 2 Samuel 9, 1-13 for a great example of what it means that King David was somebody after God's own heart. And so David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yes, at your service. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still one son of Jonathan, but he's lame in both of his feet. Where is he? The king asked. And Ziba answered, He's down in the house of Machir, the son of Ammoniel, down in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought before Lodabar, from Lodabar, from the house of Machir. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said to Mephibosheth, At your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should even notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And I'll skip to the end. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table despite being lame in both feet. What a beautiful story of King David with some sort of inspiration, trying to show the heart of God to his kingdom. And he didn't do that through trying to make his own name great. He tried to demonstrate the heart of God by finding somebody who was crippled, who was a beggar, who owned nothing, and could never repay him. And restoring his grandfather Saul's riches to Mephibosheth, and even more beautifully, letting him eat at the king's table Every day. In other words, King David knew that the heart of God is demonstrated by lavishing love on those who can't reciprocate. And if that makes your heart get a little bit stirred, it's because that's a foreshadowing of the gospel. Because the New Testament brings into crystal clarity that God demonstrated his love for us by lavishing love and forgiveness on sinners like us who couldn't reciprocate. We could offer nothing to God. We could not pay God back. But nevertheless, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son for us. So Jesus wraps up his story today saying, you shouldn't throw a party for those that will help your social status rise because it all evens out. They'll pay you back. Everybody will eventually catch up. Instead, invite those who you benefit in no way by hosting. Lavish love and service on them. And that's how you demonstrate the heart of God. And that's what shows a spark of the gospel and what God has done for believers. Uh, and it stirs in the heart of the lost that there is a loving and perfect God who longs to bestow the same undeserved love and favor and forgiveness on them. 
I'd like the worship team to come forward and uh, help us wrap up our service with a final song. And as they come up, let me ask you guys a question. Are you trying to bring honor to your kingdom? Do you throw parties and pick your clothes and your friends so everybody says that you have a great kingdom? Or do you use your time and your love and your margin in a way that builds up and glorifies God's kingdom? And I know there's many of you who do that. The main idea of the parables that we study today is that Jesus is calling us to live with a humble lack of self-promotion and to show God's lavish love on those who don't expect it and don't deserve it.